Section 18 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Denny Sayers. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 18. But he was so shy in approaching her that after this evening, which had begun by his arranging her cutlias and had ended in her complete surrender, whether from fear of chilling her or from the reluctance to appear even retrospectively to have lied, or perhaps because he lacked the audacity to formulate a more urgent requirement than this, which could always be repeated, since it had not annoyed her on the first occasion, he resorted to the same pretext on the following days. If she had any cutlias pinned to her bodice, he would say, It is most unfortunate. The cutlias don't need tucking in this evening. They've not been disturbed as they were the other night. I think, though, that this one isn't quite straight. May I see if they have more scent than the others? Or else, if she had none? Oh, no cutlias this evening. Then there's nothing for me to arrange. So that for some time there was no change from the procedure which he had followed on that first evening, when he had started by touching her throat with his fingers first, and then with his lips. But their caresses began invariably with this modest exploration and long afterwards when the arrangement or rather the ritual pretense of an arrangement of her cutlias had quite fallen into desuetude the metaphor do a cutlia transmuted into a simple verb which they would employ without a thought of its original meaning when they wished to refer to the act of physical possession, in which, paradoxically, the possessor possesses nothing, survive to commemorate in their vocabulary the long-forgotten custom from which it sprang. And yet, possibly, this particular manner of saying to make love had not the precise significance of its synonyms. However disillusioned we may be about women, However, we may regard the possession of even the most divergent types as an invariable and monotonous experience, every detail of which is known and can be described in advance. It still becomes a fresh and stimulating pleasure if the women concerned be, or be thought to be, so difficult as to oblige us to base our attack upon some unrehearsed incident in our relations with them, as was originally for Swann, the arrangement of the Cutlias. He trembled, as he hoped, that evening, but Odette, he told himself, if she were deceived by his stratagem, could not guess his intention, that it was the possession of this woman that would emerge for him from their large and richly coloured petals, and the pleasure which he already felt, and which Odette,
tolerated, he thought, perhaps only because she was not yet aware of it herself, seemed to him, for that reason, as it might have seemed to the first man, when he enjoyed it amid the flowers of the earthly paradise, a pleasure which had never before existed, which he was now striving to create, a pleasure, and the special name which he was to give it, preserved its identity, entirely individual and new. The ice once broken, every evening, when he had taken her home, he must follow her into the house, and often she would come out again in her dressing-gown, and escort him to his carriage, and would kiss him before the eyes of his coachman, saying, What on earth does it matter what people see? And on evenings when he did not go to the Verdurins, which happened occasionally, now that he had opportunities of meeting Odette elsewhere, when, more and more rarely, he went into society, she would beg him to come to her on his way home, however late he might be. The season was spring, the nights clear and frosty. He would come away from an evening party, jump into his Victoria, spread a rug over his knees, tell the friends who were leaving at the same time, and who insisted on his going home with them, that he could not, that he was not going in their direction, then the coachman would start off at a fast trot without further orders, knowing quite well where he had to go. His friends would be left marvelling, and, as a matter of fact, Swann was no longer the same man. No one ever received a letter from him, now demanding an introduction to a woman. He had ceased to pay any attention to women, and kept away from the places in which they were ordinarily to be met. In a restaurant, or in the country, his manner was deliberately and directly the opposite of that by which, only a few days earlier, his friends would have recognized him, that manner which had seemed permanently and unalterably his own. To such an extent does passion manifest itself in us as a temporary and distinct character, which not only takes the place of our normal character, but actually obliterates the signs by which that character has hitherto been discernible. On the other hand, there was one thing that was, now, invariable, namely that wherever Swann might be spending the evening, he never failed to go on afterwards to Odette. The interval of space separating her from him was one which he must as inevitably traverse as he must descend by an irresistible gravitation the steep slope of life itself. To be frank, as often as not, when he had stayed late at a party, he would have preferred to return home at once, without going so far out of his way, and to postpone their meeting until the morrow but the very fact of his putting himself to such an inconvenience at an abnormal hour in order to visit her, while he guessed that his friends, as he left them, were saying to one another, He is tied hand and foot. 
there must certainly be a woman somewhere who insists on his going to her at all hours made him feel that he was leading the life of the class of men whose existence is coloured by a love affair and in whom the perpetual sacrifice which they are making of their comfort and of their practical interests has engendered a spiritual charm then though he may not consciously have taken this into consideration the certainty that she was waiting for him that she was not anywhere or with anyone else that he would see her before he went home drew the sting from that anguish forgotten it is true but latent and ever ready to be reawakened when he had felt on the evening when odette had left the verdurins before his arrival and anguish the actual cessation of which was so agreeable that it might even be called a state of happiness perhaps it was to that hour of anguish that there must be attributed the importance which odette had since assumed in his life other people are as a rule so immaterial to us that when we have entrusted to any one of them the power to cause so much suffering or happiness to ourselves that person seems at once to belong to a different universe is surrounded with poetry makes of our lives a vast expanse quick with sensation on which that person and ourselves are ever more or less in contact swann could not without anxiety ask himself what odette would mean to him in the years that were to come sometimes as he looked up from his victoria on those fine and frosty nights of early spring and saw the dazzling moonbeams fall between his eyes and the deserted streets he would think of that other face gleaming and faintly roseate like the moon's which had one day risen on the horizon of his mind and since then had shed upon the world that mysterious light in which he saw it bathed if he arrived after the hour at which odette sent her servants to bed before ringing the bell at the gate of her little garden he would go round first into the other street over which at the ground level among the windows all exactly alike but darkened of the adjoining houses shone the solitary lighted window of her room he would rap upon the pane and she would hear the signal and answer before running to meet him at the gate he would find lying open on the piano some of her favorite music the valse des roses the pauvre fou of tagliafico which according to the instructions embodied in her will was to be played at her funeral but he would ask her instead to give him the little phrase from Mantuya's sonata it was true that odette played vilely but often the fairest impression that remains in our minds of a favourite air is one which has arisen out of a jumble of wrong notes struck by unskilful fingers upon a tuneless piano the little phrase was associated still in swann's mind 
with his love for Odette. He felt clearly that his love was something to which there were no corresponding external signs, whose meaning could not be proved by any but himself. He realized, too, that Odette's qualities were not such as to justify his setting so high a value on the hours he spent in her company, and often, when the cold government of reason stood unchallenged, he would readily have ceased to sacrifice so many of his intellectual and social interests to this imaginary pleasure. But the little phrase, as soon as it struck his ear, had the power to liberate in him the room that was needed to contain it. The proportions of Swann's soul were altered. A margin was left for a form of enjoyment which corresponded no more than his love for Odette to any external object, and yet was not, like his enjoyment of that love, purely individual, but assumed for him an objective reality superior to that of other concrete things. This thirst for an untasted charm, the little phrase would stimulate it anew in him, but without bringing him any definite gratification to assuage it. With the result that those parts of Swann's soul in which the little phrase had obliterated all care for material interests, those human considerations which affect all men alike, were left bare by it, blank pages on which he was at liberty to inscribe the name of Odette. Moreover, where Odette's affection might seem ever so little abrupt and disappointing, the little phrase would come to supplement it, to amalgamate with it its own mysterious essence. Watching Swann's face while he listened to the phrase, one would have said that he was inhaling an anaesthetic which allowed him to breathe more deeply, and the pleasure which the music gave him, which was shortly to create in him a real longing, was in fact closely akin, at such moments, to the pleasure which he would have derived from experimenting with perfumes, from entering into contract with a world for which we men were not created, which appears to lack form, because our eyes cannot perceive it, to lack significance because it escapes our intelligence, to which we may attain by way of one sense only. Deep repose, mysterious refreshment for Swann, for him whose eyes, although delicate interpreters of painting, whose mind, although an acute observer of manners, must bear forever the indelible imprint of the barrenness of his life, to feel himself transformed into a creature foreign to humanity, blinded, deprived of his logical faculty, almost a fantastic unicorn, a chimera-like creature conscious of the world through his two ears alone. And as, notwithstanding, he sought in the little phrase for a meaning to which his intelligence could not descend. With what a strange frenzy of intoxication must he strip bare his innermost soul of the whole armor of reason, and make it pass unattended 
through the straining vessel down into the dark filter of sound. He began to reckon up how much that was painful, perhaps even how much secret and unappeased sorrow underlay the sweetness of the phrase, and yet to him it brought no suffering. What matter that, though the phrase repeated that love is frail and fleeting, when his love was so strong? He played with the melancholy which the phrase diffused. He felt it stealing over him, but, like a caress, which only deepened and sweetened his own sense of his own happiness. He would make Odette play him the phrase again, ten, twenty times on end, insisting that, while she played, she must never cease to kiss him. Every kiss provokes another. Ah, in those earliest days of love, how naturally the kisses spring into life! How closely in their abundance are they pressed one against another, until lovers would find it as hard to count the kisses exchanged in an hour as to count the flowers in a meadow in May. Then she would pretend to stop, saying, how do you expect me to play when you keep on holding me i can't do everything at once make up your mind what you want am i to play the phrase or do you want to play with me then he would become annoyed and she would burst out with a laugh which was transformed as it left her lips and descended upon him in a shower of kisses or else she would look at him sulkily, and he would see once again a face worthy to figure in Botticelli's Life of Moses. He would place it there, giving to Odette's neck the necessary inclination, and when he had finished her portrait in distemper in the fifteenth century on the wall of the Sistine, the idea that she was, none the less, in the room with him still, by the piano, at that very moment, ready to be kissed and won. The idea of her material existence, of her being alive, would sweep over him with so violent an intoxication, with eyes starting from his head, and jaws that parted as though to devour her. He would fling himself upon this Botticelli maiden, and kiss and bite her cheeks. And then, as soon as he had left the house, not without returning to kiss her once again, because he had forgotten to take away with him, in memory, some detail of her fragrance, or of her features, while he drove home in his Victoria, blessing the name of Odette who allowed him to pay her these daily visits, which, although they could not, he felt, bring any great happiness to her, still by keeping him immune from the fever of jealousy, by removing from him every possibility of a fresh outbreak of the heart-sickness which had manifested itself in him that evening, when he had failed to find her at the Verdurins, might help him to arrive, without any recurrence of those crises, of which the first had been so distressing, that it must also be the last." At the termination of this strange series of hours in his life, hours almost 
enchanted, in the same manner as these other following hours, in which he drove through a deserted Paris by the light of the moon, noticing, as he drove home, that the satellite had now changed its position, relatively to his own, and was almost touching the horizon, feeling that his love also was obedient to these immutable laws of nature, he asked himself whether this period upon which he had entered was to last much longer, whether presently his mind's eye would cease to behold that dear countenance, save as occupying a distant and diminished position, and on the verge of ceasing to shed on him the radiance of its charm. For Swann was finding in things once more, since he had fallen in love, the charm that he had found when, in his adolescence, he had fancied himself an artist, with this difference, that what charm lay in them now was conferred by Odette alone. He could feel, reawakening in himself, the inspirations of his boyhood, which had been dissipated among the frivolities of his later life, but they all bore now the reflection, the stamp of a particular being. And during the long hours, which he now found a subtle pleasure in spending at home, alone with his convalescent spirit, he became gradually himself again, but himself in thraldom to another. He went to her only in the evenings, and knew nothing of how she spent her time during the day, any more than he knew of her past, so little, indeed, that he had not even the tiny initial clue, which, by allowing us to imagine what we do not know, stimulates a desire for knowledge, and so he never asked himself what she might be doing, or what her life had been. Only he smiled sometimes at the thought of how, some years earlier, when he still did not know her, someone had spoken to him of a woman who, if he remembered rightly, must certainly have been Odette, as of a tart, a kept woman, one of those women to whom he still attributed, having lived but little in their company, the entire set of characteristics, fundamentally perverse, with which they had been for many years endowed by the imagination of certain novelists. He would say to himself that one has, as often as not, only to take the exact counterpart of the reputation created by the world in order to judge a person fairly, when with such a character he contrasted that of Odette, so good, so simple, so enthusiastic in the pursuit of ideals, so clearly incapable of not telling the truth that, when he had once begged her, so that they might dine together alone, to write to Madame Verdurin, saying that she was unwell, the next day he had seen her face to face with Madame Verdurin, who asked whether she had recovered, blushing, stammering, and, in spite of herself, revealing in every feature how painful, what a torture it was to her to act a lie. And while, in her answer, she multiplied the fictitious details of an imaginary illness, 
seeming to ask pardon by her suppliant look and her stricken accents for the obvious falsehood of her words. On certain days, however, though these came seldom, she would call upon him in the afternoon to interrupt his musings or the essay on Vermeer to which he had latterly returned. His servant would come in to say that Madame de Crecy was in the small drawing-room. He would go in search of her, and when he opened the door, on Odette's blushing countenance, as soon as she saw sight of Swann, would appear, changing the curve of her lips, the look in her eyes, the moulding of her cheeks, an all-absorbing smile. Once he was left alone, he would see again that smile, and her smile of the day before, another with which she had greeted him some time else, the smile which had been her answer in the carriage that night, when he had asked her whether she objected to his rearranging her cutleus. And the life of Odette at all other times, since he knew nothing of it, appeared to him upon a neutral and colourless background, like those sheets of sketches by Watteau, upon which one sees, here and there, in every corner and in all directions, traced in three colours upon the buff paper, innumerable smiles. But once in a while, illuminating a chink of that existence which Swann still saw as a complete blank, even if his mind assured him that it was not so, because he was unable to imagine anything that might occupy it, some friend who knew them both, and suspecting that they were in love, had not dared to tell him anything about her that was of the least importance, would describe Odette's figure as he had seen her that very morning going on foot up the Rue Abatucci, in a cape trimmed with skunks, wearing a Rembrandt hat, and a bunch of violets in her bosom. This simple outline reduced Swann to utter confusion by enabling him suddenly to perceive that Odette had an existence which was not wholly subordinated to his own. He burned to know whom she had been seeking to fascinate by this costume in which he had never seen her, he registered a vow to insist upon her telling him where she had been going at that intercepted moment, as though in all the colourless life, a life almost non-existent, since she was then invisible to him, of his mistress. There had been but a single incident apart from all those smiles directed towards himself, namely, her walking abroad, beneath a Rembrandt hat, with a bunch of violets in her bosom. Except when he asked her for Vantuya's little phrase, instead of the valse des roses, Swann made no effort to induce her to play the things that he himself preferred, nor, in literature any more than in music, to correct the manifold errors of her taste. He fully realized that she was not intelligent, when she said how much she would like him to tell her about the great poets, she had imagined that she would suddenly get to know whole pages of romantic and heroic verse in the style of the Vicomte de Burelli, only 
even more moving. As for Vermeer, or Delft, she asked whether he had been made to suffer by a woman, if it was a woman that had inspired him, and once Swann had told her that no one knew, she had lost all interest in that painter. She would often say, I'm sure, poetry, well, of course, there'd be nothing like it if it was all true, if the poets really believed the things they said. But as often as not, you'll find there's no one so mean and calculating as those fellows. I know something about poetry. I had a friend once who was in love with a poet of sorts. In his verses he never spoke of anything but love and heaven and the stars. Oh, she was properly taken in. He had more than three hundred thousand francs out of her before he'd finished. If then Swann tried to show her in what artistic beauty consisted, how one ought to appreciate poetry or painting, after a minute or two she would cease to listen, saying, Yes, I never thought it would be like that. And he felt that her disappointment was so great that he preferred to lie to her, assuring her that what he had said was nothing, that he had only touched the surface, that he had not time to go into it all properly, that there was more in it than that. Then she would interrupt him with a brisk, More in it? What? Do tell me. But he did not tell her, for he realized how petty it would appear to her, and how different from what she had expected, less sensational and less touching. He was afraid, too, lest, disillusioned in the matter of art, she might at the same time be disillusioned in the greater matter of love, with the result that she found Swann inferior intellectually to what she had supposed. You're always so reserved, I can't make you out. She marveled increasingly at his indifference to money, at his courtesy to everyone alike, at the delicacy of his mind. And indeed it happens often enough, to a greater man than Swann ever was, to a scientist or artist, when he is not wholly misunderstood by the people among whom he lives, that the feeling in them which proves that they have been convinced of the superiority of his intellect is created not by any admiration for his ideas, for those are entirely beyond them, but by their respect for what they term his good qualities. There was also the respect with which Odette was inspired by the thought of Swann's social position, although she had no desire that he should attempt to secure invitations for herself. Perhaps she felt that such attempts would be bound to fail. Perhaps, indeed, she feared lest, merely by speaking of her to his friends, he should provoke disclosures of an unwelcome kind. The fact remains that she had consistently held him to his promise never to mention her name. Her reason for not wishing to go into society was, she had told him, a quarrel which she had had long ago, 
with another girl who had avenged herself by saying nasty things about her. But, Swann objected, surely people don't all know your friend. Yes, don't you see, it's like a spot of oil. People are so horrid. Swann was unable, frankly, to appreciate this point. On the other hand, he knew that such generalizations as people are so horrid, and a word of scandal spreads like a spot of oil, were generally accepted as true. There must, therefore, be cases to which they were literally applicable. Could Odette's case be one of these? He teased himself with the question, though not for long, for he was too subject to that mental oppression which had so weighed upon his father whenever he was faced by a difficult problem. In any event, that world of society which concealed such terrors for Odette inspired her, probably, with no very great longing to enter it, since it was too far removed from the world which she already knew, for her to be able to form any clear conception of it. At the same time, while in certain respects she had retained a genuine simplicity, she had, for instance, kept up a friendship with a little dressmaker, now retired from business, up whose steep and dark and fetid staircase she clambered almost every day. She still thirsted to be in the fashion, though her idea of it was not altogether that held by fashionable people. For the latter, fashion is a thing that emanates from a comparatively small number of leaders, who project it to a considerable distance, with more or less strength, according as one is nearer to, or farther from, their intimate centre, over the widening circle of their friends, and the friends of their friends, whose names form a sort of tabulated index. People in society know this index by heart. They are gifted in such matters with an erudition from which they have extracted a sort of taste, of tact, so automatic in its operation that Swann, for example, without needing to draw upon his knowledge of the world, if he read in a newspaper the names of the people who had been guests at a dinner, could tell at once how fashionable the dinner had been, just as a man of letters, merely by reading a phrase, can estimate exactly the literary merit of its author. But Odette was one of those persons, an extremely numerous class, whatever the fashionable world may think, and to be found in every section of society, who do not share this knowledge, but imagine fashion to be something of quite another kind, which assumes different aspects according to the circle to which they themselves belong, but has the special characteristic, common alike to the fashion of which Odette used to dream, and to that before which Madame Cotard bowed, of being directly accessible to all. The other kind, the fashion of fashionable people, is, it must be admitted, accessible also. But there are inevitable delays. Odette would say of someone, 
he never goes to any place that isn't really smart. And if Swann were to ask her what she meant by that, she would answer with a touch of contempt. Smart places, why, good heavens, just fancy at your age having to be told what the smart places are in Paris. What do you expect me to say? Well, on Sunday mornings there's the Avenue de l'Imperatrice, and round the lake at five o'clock, and on Thursdays the Eden Theatre, and the Hippodrome on Fridays. Then there are the balls. What balls? Why, silly, the balls people give in Paris, the smart ones, I mean. Wait now. Herbinger, you know who I mean, the fellow who's in one of the jobbers' offices. Yes, of course, you must know him. He's one of the best-known men in Paris. That great big fair-haired boy who wears such swagger clothes. He always has a flower in his buttonhole and a light-colored overcoat with a fold down the back. He goes about with that old image, takes her to all the first nights. Very well, he gave a ball the other night, and all the smart people in Paris were there. I should have loved to go, but you had to show your invitations at the door, and I couldn't get one anywhere. After all, I'm just as glad, now, that I didn't go. I should have been killed in the crush and seen nothing. Still, just to be able to say, one had been to Herbinger's ball. You know how vain I am. However, you may be quite certain that half the people who tell you they were there are telling stories. But I am surprised that you weren't there, a regular tip-topper like you. Swann made no attempt, however, to modify this conception of fashion, feeling that his own came no nearer to the truth, was just as fatuous, devoid of all importance. He saw no advantage to be gained by imparting it to his mistress, with the result that, after a few months, she ceased to take any interest in the people to whose houses he went, except when they were the means of his obtaining tickets for the paddock at race meetings, or first nights at the theatre. She hoped that he would continue to cultivate such profitable acquaintances, but she had come to regard them as less smart since the day when she had passed the Marquise de Viparisi in the street, wearing a black serge dress and a bonnet with strings. But she looks like a pew-opener, like an old charwoman, darling. <laughs> that a marquise goodness knows i'm not a marquise but you'd have to pay me a lot of money before you'd get me to go about paris rigged out like that nor could she understand swann's continuing to live in his house on the quai d'orleans which though she dared not tell him so she considered unworthy of him it was true that she claimed to be fond of antiques and used to assume a rapturous and knowing air when she confessed how she loved to spend the whole day rummaging in second-hand shops, hunting for bric-a-brac and things of the right date, although it was a point of honour to which she obstinately clung, 
as though obeying some old family custom, that she should never answer any questions, nor give any account of what she did during the daytime. She spoke to Swan once about a friend to whose house she had been invited, and had found that everything in it was of the period. Swan could not get her to tell him what period it was. Only after thinking the matter over, she replied that it was medieval, by which she meant that the walls were panelled. Some time later she spoke to him again of her friend, and added, in the hesitating but confident tone in which one refers to a person whom one has met somewhere at dinner the night before, of whom one had never heard until then, but whom one's host seemed to regard as someone so celebrated and important that one hopes that one's listener will know quite well who is met, and will be duly impressed. Her dining-room is eighteenth century. Incidentally, she had thought it hideous, all bare, as though the house were still unfinished, Women looked frightful in it, and it would never become the fashion. She mentioned it again a third time, when she showed Swan a card with the name and address of the man who had designed the dining-room, and whom she wanted to send for, when she had enough money, to see whether he could not do one for her too. Not one like that, of course, but one of the sort she used to dream of, one which, unfortunately, her little house would not be large enough to contain, with tall sideboards, Renaissance furniture, and fireplaces like the chateau at Blois. It was on this occasion that she let out to Swann what she really thought of his abode on the Quai d'Orléans, he having ventured the criticism that her friend had indulged not in the Louis the Sixteenth style, for he went on, although that was not, of course, done, still it might be made charming, but in the sham antique. You wouldn't have her live like you among a lot of broken-down chairs and threadbare carpets, she exclaimed, the innate respectability of the middle-class housewife rising impulsively to the surface, through the acquired dilettantism of the light woman. People who enjoyed picking up things, who admired poetry, despised sordid calculations of profit and loss, and nourished ideals of honour and love, she placed in a class by themselves, superior to the rest of humanity. There was no need actually to have those tastes, provided one talked enough about them. When a man had told her at dinner that he loved to wander about and get his hands all covered with dust in the old furniture shops, that he would never be really appreciated in this commercial age, since he was not concerned about the things that interested it, and that he belonged to another generation altogether, she would come home saying, Why, He's an adorable creature, so sensitive, I had no idea. And she would conceive for him a strong and sudden friendship. But, on the other hand, men who, like Swan, 
had these tastes, but did not speak of them, left her cold. She was obliged, of course, to admit that Swann was most generous with his money, but she would add, pouting, it's not the same thing, you see, with him. And, as a matter of fact, what appealed to her imagination was not the practice of disinterestedness, but its vocabulary. Feeling that, often, he could not give her, in reality, the pleasures of which she dreamed, he tried at least to ensure that she should be happy in his company, tried not to contradict those vulgar ideas, that bad taste which she displayed on every possible occasion, which all the same he loved, as he could not help loving everything that came from her, which even fascinated him, for were they not so many more of those characteristic features by virtue of which the essential qualities of the woman emerged and were made visible? And so, when she was in a happy mood, because she was going to see the Ren Topaz, or when her eyes grew serious, troubled, petulant, if she was afraid of missing the flower show, or merely of not being in time for tea, with muffins and toast, at the Rue Royale tea-rooms, where she believed that regular attendance was indispensable, and set the seal upon a woman's certificate of smartness. Swan, enraptured, as all of us are at times, by the natural behaviour of a child, or by the likeness of a portrait, which appears to be on the point of speaking, would feel so distinctly the soul of his mistress rising to fill the outlines of her face, that he could not refrain from going across and welcoming it with his lips. Oh, then, so little Odette wants us to take her to the flower show, does she? She wants to be admired, does she? Very well, we will take her there. We can but obey her wishes. As Swann's sight was beginning to fail, he had to resign himself to a pair of spectacles, which he wore at home, when working, while to face the world he adopted a single eyeglass, as being less disfiguring. The first time that she saw it in his eye, she could not contain herself for joy. I really do think, for a man, that is to say, it is tremendously smart. How nice you look with it! Every inch a gentleman! All you want now is a title, she concluded with a tinge of regret in her voice. He liked Odette to say these things, just as, if he had been in love with the Breton girl, he would have enjoyed seeing her in her coif, and hearing her say that she believed in ghosts. Always until then, as is common among men, whose taste for the fine arts develops independently of their sensuality, a grotesque disparity had existed between the satisfactions which he would accord to either taste simultaneously, yielding to the seduction of works of art, which grew more and more subtle, as the women in whose company he enjoyed them grew more illiterate and common. He would take a little servant-girl to a screened box in a theatre, 
where there was some decadent piece which he had wished to see performed, or to an exhibition of impressionist painting. With the conviction, moreover, that an educated society woman would have understood them no better, but would not have managed to keep quiet about them so prettily. But now that he was in love with Odette, all this was changed. To share her sympathies, to strive to be one with her in spirit, was a task so attractive that he tried to find satisfaction in the things that she liked, and did find a pleasure not only in copying her habits, but in adopting her opinions, which was all the deeper because, as those habits and opinions sprang from no roots in her intelligence, they suggested to him nothing except that love, for the sake of which he had preferred them to his own. If he went again to Serge Panin, if he looked for opportunities of going to watch Olivier Maitre conducting, it was for the pleasure of being initiated into every one of the ideas in Odette's mind, of feeling that he had an equal share in all her tastes. This charm of drawing him closer to her, which her favorite plays and pictures and places possessed, struck him as being more mysterious than the intrinsic charm of more beautiful things and places, which appealed to him by their beauty, but without recalling her. Besides having allowed the intellectual beliefs of his youth to grow faint, until his skepticism, as a finished man of the world, had gradually penetrated them unawares, he held or at least he had held for so long, that he had fallen into the habit of saying that the objects which we admire have no absolute value in themselves, that the whole thing is a matter of dates and casts, and consists in a series of fashions, the most vulgar of which are worth just as much as those which are regarded as the most refined and as he had decided that the importance which Odette attached to receiving cards to a private view was not in itself any more ridiculous than the pleasure which he himself had at one time felt in going to luncheon with the Prince of Wales. So he did not think that the admiration which she professed for Monte Carlo or for the Riggi was any more unreasonable than his liking for Holland, which she imagined as ugly, and for Versailles, which bored her to tears. And so he denied himself the pleasure of visiting those places, consoling himself with the reflection that it was for her sake that he wished to feel, to like nothing that was not equally felt and liked by her. Like everything else that formed part of Odette's environment, and was no more, in a sense, than the means whereby he might see and talk to her more often, he enjoyed the society of the Verdurin. With them, since, at the heart of all their entertainments, dinners, musical evenings, games, suppers in fancy dress, excursions to the country, theatre parties, 
even the infrequent big evenings when they entertained bores there were the presence of odette the sight of odette conversation with odette an inestimable boon which the verdurin by inviting him to their house bestowed on swann he was happier in the little nucleus than anywhere else and tried to find some genuine merit in each of its members imagining that his tastes would lead him to frequent their society for the rest of his life never daring to whisper to himself lest he should doubt the truth of the suggestion that he would always be in love with odette at least when he tried to suppose that he would always go to the verdurin a proposition which a priori raised fewer fundamental objections on the part of his intelligence he saw himself for the future continuing to meet odette every evening that did not perhaps come quite to the same thing as his being permanently in love with her but for the moment while he was in love with her to feel that he would not one day cease to see her was all that he could ask what a charming atmosphere he said to himself how entirely genuine life is to these people they are far more intelligent far more artistic surely than the people one knows madame verdurin in spite of a few trifling exaggerations which are rather absurd has a sincere love of painting and music what a passion for works of art what anxiety to give pleasure to artists her ideas about some of the people one knows are not quite right but then their ideas about artistic circles are altogether wrong possibly i make no great intellectual demands upon conversation but i am perfectly happy talking to Qatar, although he does trot out those idiotic puns and as for the painter if he is rather unpleasantly affected when he tries to be paradoxical still he has one of the finest brains that i have ever come across besides what is most important one feels quite free there one does what one likes without constraint or fuss what a flow of humour there is every day in that drawing-room certainly with a few rare exceptions i never want to go anywhere else again it will become more and more of a habit and i shall spend the rest of my life among them End of section 18